0: Way back in the day, when I first started preparing to enter the ministry, the school that I attended introduced me to all sorts of tests. Not just academic tests, but personality tests, temperament analysis tests, and even spiritual gift tests. So after learning, whether we were introverts or extroverts or hostile or melancholy or whatever else, We took a spiritual gift test to see how we might best serve in the church. The test was basically the Enneagram of its day. There were nine gifts, and the results of the test depended on how honestly you answered the list of questions. The test could be manipulated, and so it became sort of a choose-your-own-adventure experiment. The test would show your strongest trait and your weakest trait and then put everything else in the middle. And we didn't care about that so much. We just wanted to know where we were the weakest and where we were the strongest. I have to be honest that almost no one wanted their spiritual gift to be administrator or giver. But almost everyone I knew wanted their gift to be prophet or evangelist. And most of the guys wanted to be prophet and prophet because prophets are assertive and outspoken and in your, in your face and to the point. In other words, if you, according to the test, had the gift of being a prophet, you had a spiritualized free pass to be a cocky, arrogant jerk that could go around blowing people up and nailing their hides to the wall in the name of Jesus. Well, we learned... That that was wrong, and, and we were ever so wrong to even imagine that that's what prophets would do. But sadly, this is what people think of when they think of prophets. But the prophets of God, at least the true prophets of God, are not like that at all. The prophets that we find in the story of the Bible proclaim God's truth in love. They proclaim God's truth in love, and they were not jerks about it. Most of the prophets that we have met just in this series were simple, ordinary men who were called by God to do extraordinary tasks. And when you look at their life and their work, you see that they worked and they wept. They prayed and they preached, they served, and they suffered. All the prophets suffered. Some suffered even unto death. The prophets were types and shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the prophet of all prophets, the word made flesh, who came into the world full of grace and truth. This is a distinguishing mark of the Lord Jesus. Unlike Moses, who came with the law, Jesus came full of grace and truth. So in the story before us today, we find Jesus engaging in prophetic ministry. He is teaching and preaching at the temple during a festival of water and light. He knew that public opinion about him was divided. Some people said, he's a good man. Other people said, no, he's a bad man. He's a deceiver. He's out to trick us. And then there was a group of religious leaders who hated him so much that they were seeking a way to kill him. But Jesus shows up at this festival to do what all of his kinsmen are doing, and that is to celebrate the annual feast that commemorated Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This was known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. It was a week-long party with lots of singing and dancing and eating and drinking, all in the context of worship. So aside from the fact that some people wanted to kill Jesus, it was a pretty festive time. And one of the main events during this week was the pouring out of water before the Lord. Remember, the people in the wilderness often experienced thirst and they cried out to God for water. And this is a reminder that water is needed and God provides. And so they would pour water out before the Lord. Day after day, water would be carried from the pool of Siloam to the temple and it would be poured over the altar as prayers were recited and psalms were sung. Every morning, a procession would go down to the fountain of Gihon, which supplied waters to the pool of Siloam, and there a priest would take a golden pitcher and fill it with water, and the choir would sing, With joy you draw water from the wells of salvation, a line straight out of the book of Isaiah. And as the choir is singing this, the people process back up through the water gate and come into the temple, and they go up to the altar. All the while the people are waving palm branches and leafy plants and pieces of cloth because they lived in tents. The priest would go up to the altar and he would pour water into a silver funnel that allowed the water to drain straight down to the ground. This is presented to God as a drink offering to give him thanks for his provision. He would pour water into a silver bowl and then pour it upon the altar and trumpets would sound and the crowds would go crazy. They would sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And here's just one line from one of those Psalms. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. And just in that one line, that one snippet, you see so many threads and strands of their story coming together and tying itself to this moment. On the seventh day, the priest would march around the altar seven times, recalling the time when the walls of Jericho fell at the end of that 40-year sojourney in the wilderness, marking the end of their wandering around in the wilderness and the beginning of the conquest of the land. And at this time, it also signaled their desire that the Lord God would conquer their enemies once again by his mighty power. But it is on the last and the great day of the feast that prayers are offered up to God to send life-giving water from heaven upon the earth for the life of the world. And it was at this solemn moment that the word made flesh stood up in the temple and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. And those who are around him turn and gaze upon him and wonder what sort of man might be and why would he say these kinds of things. It's in that moment that he says these things that ritual became reality and their requests were realized. God in the flesh is standing among them. The rock from whom streams of water flowed in the desert is now in their presence, offering to give them living water to anyone who is thirsty enough to come to him and drink. And it's in response to these things that the people began to debate, who is he? Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Is he a deceiver? And as this debate breaks out, some people insist, no, he is the prophet that God promised to send to us through Moses. You see, they remembered that God had spoken to Moses and Moses had said to the people all those centuries ago that the time is going to come when the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And for generations, they have been looking for this prophet, waiting for the advent of this prophet to come. Might Jesus be the one? Some say yes. Some say no. But those who said yes said he is the prophet. And the reason they said that is because Jesus reminded them of Moses. He spoke with authority like Moses. He told the truth like Moses. He did signs and wonders like Moses. He gave bread to the people like Moses. He must be the prophet that God promised to send. And John has been telling us in his gospel that Jesus is the word made flesh, the prophet raised up from among God's people to be the voice of the Lord to the world. He is here to speak the truth, to speak grace in love for the life of the world. But how does Jesus execute the office of prophet? The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this, that Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and his spirit the will of God for our salvation. Notice that the confession or the creed does not say that he he comes to blow us up and nail our hides to the wall. No, he comes to show us the will of God for our salvation. And we see Jesus doing this very thing throughout the course of his ministry in the Gospel of John. Now, if you will indulge me, I want to give you seven snapshots of what I'm talking about in the life of Jesus. Seven seven snapshots of Jesus the prophet showing us what it means for him to be the prophet that God promised to send to his people. The prophet that becomes the voice of God to bring grace and truth to us. The first snapshot. Jesus, the prophet, calls middle-aged, blue-collar men to follow him. They're fishermen. Nothing wrong with being a fisherman. It's good work, good career, nothing wrong with it at all. But Jesus recruited these men to follow him and serve alongside him on his mission to the world. He called them to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, for some of them, were going to give their lives to this ministry. They had to leave it all behind and become his students and his servants. He formed a school of the prophets with the twelve apostles. He changed their names, and he changed their lives, and they changed the world. Second snapshot. Jesus the prophet, concerned about young people sees a young man from afar and predicts good things for his future. He tells this young man named Nathaniel, I saw you from a distance while you were sitting under the fig tree. I saw you while you were contemplating your life. I saw while you were trying to sort it all out. I saw you there. I got news for you. You are going to see something too. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the true stairway to heaven. You will see this, Nathaniel." Mark my words. Young people, Jesus cares about you. He has a future for you. Third snapshot. Jesus the prophet speaks the truth to a devout old man. He's not a blue-collar worker. He's more of a white-collar guy, scholar and scribe. He's an old man. Nicodemus, the kingdom of God is not about your politics and your religion. I know they're important to you. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about your life experience. How many pages you've torn off the calendar. It's not about your academic achievements. Or your position on the court of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need new eyes. If you want to feel the kingdom of God, you need a new heart. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you got to go all the way back to the beginning. Old man... You must become like a newborn baby. You need a fresh start. You need a clean slate. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. Hard words for an older man to hear, but Jesus loves old men. And he engages old men. Treats them like fathers and brothers. He wants them to know the will of God for their salvation. Third snapshot, fourth snapshot, fourth snapshot. Jesus, the prophet, talks to a worldly wise woman. Let's call her Sam. He meets her at noonday. She's far away from her town, far away from her community. She's all alone drawing water. The rest of the women did it early in the morning, but here she is in the middle of the day doing it by herself. She carries a lot of shame with her. She's got a track record. She's got a story She's tired of telling it, tired of people telling her what it is. We meet this woman and we're not sure, is she a widow? Is she a divorcee? Is she a concubine? Is she a live-in girlfriend? We don't know. All we know about her is that several men had come and gone from her life. And for all she knows, Jesus is just another man trying to take advantage of her. Just another man trying to wreck her life, add a little bit more damage to an already damaged life. Jesus is different. He's not like other men. He shows her respect and kindness. He speaks to her like she's a human being. He engages her in real conversation. And John lays it out for us that the two of them end up having one of the most profound spiritual and theological conversations ever recorded in all of the Bible. Along the way, she perceives that Jesus is a prophet. And after she realizes he's a prophet, he tells her the truth in love. You can do that when people know you love them. He tells her the truth in love, and he says to her, Sam, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You've been drinking from the wrong wells. You're trying to quench thirst that leave you thirstier and drier than ever before. You need what I have to offer. You need the spirit. You need living water. You're worshiping in the wrong places with the wrong motives. You need to worship God in spirit and in truth. Sam, you need a savior. And she hears what he has to say because he speaks truth and love. And he can end by saying, Stop playing hide and seek. Come back home, Sam. Fifth snapshot. Jesus the prophet comes full of grace and truth and he speaks, speaks these comforting words to everyone, anyone who has ever struggled with their own mortality. Anyone and everyone who has ever suffered grief because death has touched their life in some way. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. No, the hour is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Death is the last enemy. But death does not get the last word. The curse of sin and death will be reversed in your life and mine because it was reversed in the life of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus mean by doing good? That might cause us a bit of alarm as we consider his coming and the resurrection and what that means. Will I be raised to life or raised to judgment? Will I have done enough good? Is that what he means? Does Jesus mean that if you've done more good than bad, you're raised to life? And if you've done more bad than good, you're raised to judgment? That's the popular version of this. That's what most people think is that somehow we need to tip the scales one way or the other. And so we try to heap on all the good works and deeds we can to justify our resurrection to life. But in context... That is not what Jesus means. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, whoever hears his word and believes has eternal life. What is the good thing that you must do to receive eternal life, to inherit resurrection unto life? Trust Jesus. Believe his word. Embrace his promises by faith. He says he... Does not come into judgment who does that, but has passed from death to life. What a beautiful promise. If you're wrestling with mortality, if you've been stung by death, know that Jesus cares for you. This prophet comes to speak grace and truth into your life. Sixth snapshot. Jesus the prophet spoke the truth to crowds who somehow figured out that he was the prophet that God had promised through Moses. And the way they figured it out is they were following him around in deserted places in the wilderness. And it was getting late and they were hungry and it was too far to get back home and they were going to faint on the way. And he cared about them. And he gave them food. He provided what they needed. He gave them bread and sustained their lives. And initially, they were thankful for the bread, and they marveled at the power of Jesus to do such things. But like their forefathers, they soon began to grumble and complain about a variety of things. And if you read the story carefully enough, you'll find that what they were grumbling and complaining about was nothing less than politics and religion and sports. Sounds so familiar. And Jesus has to remind them to stop grumbling and remember that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He speaks to them as a prophet and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But I am the living bread that came from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus holds nothing back for the good of his people. He lays it all out, lays it all down, flesh and blood. He gives it all up for you. He does it for the life of the world. So he says to this crowd, much the same thing he said to Sam at the well in the desert. You guys are looking for life in all the wrong places. You tried to satisfy your hunger with things that only leave you grumbling and complaining in the end. And what you really need is living bread. Not bread that will go stale, not bread that will mold, not mail, that bread that will perish, but Bread from heaven that gives you eternal life. This is what you need. Bread that sustains you body and soul. Where do we get this bread? Jesus. Well, we get it from Jesus. And it's not just from Jesus. It is Jesus. Seventh snapshot. Jesus the prophet spoke the truth to his disciples. So here he is. Many of them are grumbling about his hard teaching. Some things he said were just hard Hard to believe, hard to put into practice, hard to accept. They're complaining and grumbling about that. Jesus is getting a little bit too weird and mystical. Strange things are coming out of his mouth. And some of us are thinking about leaving Jesus. We think maybe the crowds have the right idea. And in response to all of this, the prophet says to to this crowd of complainers, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, Jesus does not go begging and pleading for them to stay. He doesn't go begging and pleading for them to change their minds. He's already given them all he can give them. Grace, truth, love. He's taken care of them body and soul. And if that's not enough for them, there's nothing else he can do for them. And so he's unapologetic and unabashed because the truth has nothing to fear. And after he says these things, many of his disciples turn back and they're no longer his disciples. They no longer follow him. The very definition of a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And if you turn your back on Jesus, you're no longer a disciple because you're no longer following Jesus. And unfazed by all of this, Jesus turns to the twelve apostles and he asks them a very pointed question. Do you want to go away as well? What's on your mind? What's on your heart? What are your plans? What do you guys want to do? What are you thinking about? Let's get it out on the table. Notice again that Jesus the prophet does not force anyone to come to him. He does not force anyone to go away. He does not force you to stay. You may come and go as you please. He does not beg you. He does not plead with you. He simply offers himself to you, brings you to the crossroads of life or death, blessing or cursing. And he asks you, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Which path will you take? What do you like? What's on your mind today? Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to stay or do you want to go? And notice that Jesus lets you do whatever you want to do. He puts the burden back on you, doesn't he? He lets you do what you want to do. But he also wants you to know that he'll let you do what you want to do. And he'll let you live with the consequences of what you choose to do. It's back on you, not on him. So do you want to stay or do you want to go? Here is the prophet of God, the voice of God speaking into your life. Do you want to live? Do you want to die? He doesn't give margins. He doesn't give gray area. There is no wiggle room here. It's one thing to believe Jesus is the prophet. It's another thing to obey his word. It's one thing to say no one has ever spoken like this man before. It's another thing to say we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man is truly the savior of the world. you see the difference? The first group admires Jesus because of his ability to speak. Because he says the hard things that no one else will say. But the second group adores Jesus because they know that he has come to save them from their sins. So it's not enough to admire Jesus like a fan. You must adore him like a follower. Acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge what he says. And ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. Jesus himself will say later on to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. So there is no sort of, I like you, but I don't like you like you, Jesus. Jesus says to love him is to listen to him. To hate him is to not to hear him. And Moses says this about the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus is simply echoing this. Moses said, You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to what that prophet says shall be destroyed from among his people. So listening to the prophet is no trivial take it or leave it kind of matter. It is a matter of life or death. It is the difference between being saved or being condemned. To listen is, is more than audibly registering noise that comes from someone's mouth. To listen means to hear, to mark, learn, and inwardly digest that word, and then to outwardly do what it says. It means that you must acknowledge your thirst your hunger, your need, and come to Jesus. It means that you must follow Jesus and learn his words and his way of life. You must receive baptism as the sign of new birth. To be born of water and the Spirit is to be sprinkled clean and to receive a new heart. It means you must drink from the fountain of the Spirit, not the cisterns of the flesh. That you must live with the hope of the resurrection of the body from the dead in your heart. And know that death is not the end, but a means to the end, which is life immortal in Christ. And you must drink and eat the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. To partake of communion is to participate in Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection. It is to participate in his sacrificial death for the life of the world. It is to bring Christ into your life so that you might be changed and conformed to his image. It means that you must stay with Jesus no matter what. Even if everyone else falls away, drifts away, sneaks away or goes away. You must stay with Jesus because Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the prophet. He is the Holy One of God. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways, through various people. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus is the final word of God. Listen to Him. He's the prophet who reveals to you the will of God for your salvation. And what is the will of God for your salvation That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise you. We will bless you as long as we live. In your name, we will lift up our hands. Our soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and our mouths will praise you with joyful lips when we remember you upon our bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been our help. And in the shadow of your wings, we will sing for joy. Our soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.